So uh, now, now you're, you know, finally a sermon. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, uh, the people who followed Jesus so closely, followed him tightly, walked with him, and all of these things, they came to Jesus with a burning and even kind of desperate question that they asked Jesus. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him teach with power and authority. They had seen him offer this whole new life to people that he called the kingdom of God, and people were entering into it. It was this amazing uh, thing that they had watched Jesus do, but they came with him with this deep question because they had seen him uh, do this one practice over and over again, and it left them uh, mystified. It left them wanting more and more and more. And so they came asking him, teach us to pray. They came, Lord, teach us how to pray. It's pretty interesting. You can go through the whole Gospels. This, is, this could be your fun Mother's Day afternoon exercise. Read through all of the Gospels. His desk is, uh, it's actually not that long. Uh, we, you know, it's a small part of the Bible, but it's kind of repetitive. There's four that, anyway. If you went through them and you read them, you'd find that they never say, Lord, teach us how to cast out demons. They never come and say, Lord, teach us how to preach the gospel. Uh, his disciples never say, Lord, teach us how to do miracles. They never ask, teach us how to multiply food. Like, that's an amazing thing that he did, right? Fish and loaves, thousands of people fed. They don't ask that, teach us how to do that thing. They don't ask, Lord, teach us how to start a church. They don't say, Lord, teach us how to do any of those other things. The only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do is how to pray. Uh, prayer, uh, then, is the context in which we start anything. Uh, I think that's what the disciples understood. Prayer is the, is the beginning. It's the launch pad. Uh, prayer is the only way that we would sustain anything. Uh, that, this living out this rich life with Jesus. It, prayer is that kind of context. It's almost as if they thought, okay, the thing must be if I learn how to commune with and ask and listen to God, the creator of the universe, then all things I will know how to do. Or then through, through that, I will learn and be able to be dependent in God for all things, that it all flows from prayer. There was this old English preacher named Charles Spurgeon, uh, he had a middle name, Haddon, which is pretty cool. I'm a little disappointed no one's dedicated a child named Haddon, but we'll get there one day. That's just a tip for anybody naming a child. Uh, but anyway, Charles Spurgeon, he, he was this great English preacher, and then he taught generations of preachers, and he was actually speaking to some of these young people who were aspiring to be preachers. And Charles Spurgeon, he had this funny thing where he would measure men's chests to see if they could preach, like that was one of his qualifications. Uh, he had all these really weird things that he thought was really important that now we don't because we have microphones and health. Uh, we know not to smoke cigars every day like he did. But anyway, he had this, this room full of preachers who were wanting to know, how can I do what you do? How can I see a church? He had this church in the middle of London that was thriving and bustling, and they were starting churches all over England and then even all over the world. And they were like, what do we have to do? And he said, the only thing that you have to do for a church to be the church is teach them the holy art of prayer. He talked about a prayer. He's like, the, the most important thing that happens on any Sunday is teaching people how to pray. Uh, the, the, the thing that, that will allow the, the church to thrive and flourish is to know that what he called the holy art of prayer. And so if you're going to do anything, he says, you have to train yourself and learn 
how to talk to God and listen to God, and he called it this holy art of prayer, which is just a really great uh, tagline, which you'll see in our little guides, uh, which, is what we're, which is why this, holy, this need to train a church into prayer. It's why we take this immersive journey every year. It's why we're taking five weeks to learn uh, how to pray. It's why we do it in our missional communities. It's why we're doing it in our DNA groups. It's why uh, we have personal formation times of, of practicing uh, this, this art of learning to talk with God. And so grab one of those guides on your way out. They're really easy to see. They're, they're pink-ish. Uh, and, and it will guide you through each of those different things. Uh, and the reason we do that is because we have a desire and a vision of seeing broken things made new, uh, of seeing captives set free. Uh, we, we desire to see lives raised to life yet again. And it all begins with prayer. Uh, And this year, we're focusing on Jesus' model prayer, the prayer that he gives to the disciples after they ask, please teach us how to pray. Uh, And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to start, and it's a really short prayer. It's something that you might have memorized when you were a little kid or in school, if you might have been forced to if you went to a certain type of school. But this is from Luke chapter 11, and it says this. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation." This is God's word. Uh, throughout this time, we're going to be taking one line at a time. And so today, we're, we're doing just one line, one word, Father, uh, which I know is terribly ironic. Uh, I should mark it all in much brighter letters that this is Mother's Day. And so I know. I'm aware, but you can still email me, text me, talk to me about it afterwards. But we're going to be focusing on this word, Father. Uh, and and the, I think what Jesus is saying with this is he's illustrating that the beginning of all prayer uh, and the flows out of a relational God and an understanding that our God is a God of relationship. Uh, us having one with him, him having one with us. Prayer is also rooted really deeply uh, in this reality of transformation of us from orphans to children of God. That's the, even the beginning of the praying life is understanding that that shift has happened. And so first, you know, these words, Father, they kind of ring in opposition, uh, even contrary to all of our understanding uh, and all of our even functional atheism, which says, I'm here and I'm all alone. And Jesus, these words, when he says, we start by praying, Father, we're confronted with our own kind of orphanhood mentality. I think prayerlessness, like the inability to pray or the, the lack of desire to pray or, or even the, the, the strength to continue praying, it often occurs because we feel and we operate as if we are orphans. Uh, I remember when I was in college and I first became aware that there were children who uh, did not have parents. Uh, it was around, I was you know, in a liberal arts university, so a lot of it had to do with what was happening in Africa because that was cool in the early 2000s, and it was impactful and, and powerful that, that there were these wars happening that orphaned not just a few kids, but thousands of kids. 
Uh, that there were, there were these conflicts where children were taken and stolen from their homes and used and then thrown away. Uh, I can remember reading lots of books and stories about it, watching documentaries. Uh, you can uh, read up on the Lost Boys of Sudan if you want, just in, in particular. But one of the things that you notice is that the life of an orphan is a life of deep loss, of just missing out, of something essential being taken away from them. Uh, the reality of an orphan is that they miss out on provision. They have to go and provide for themselves always. Remember reading this story about a child who had to go and find coconuts that they could crack and no one was going to give them any food. They had to go provide for themselves on their own. They missed out on that. Orphans also, they miss out on protection. No one is going to come and, and keep you safe. No one's going to protect you from the harm and the, and the battles of this world. So you have to go secure your own thing. Uh, orphans uh, are misplaced. They have to go find a place in the world. There's no home for them to go to. There's no nestled thing that says, welcome, we're glad that you were born into this world. They have to go secure that for themselves. Often wandering through the rest of their lives as a refugee, even within their own country, even within their own city, feeling completely misplaced. And so they have to build their own kingdom, their own place. Uh, orphans, too, they miss out on pride. No one is coming and cheering them on. No one's celebrating. They have to cheer for themselves or find someone or find something that they can do good enough that others might say, wow, that was really good. And this is definitely acute and much more intensified, all of those categories, on those who are themselves without earthly fathers and mothers. But that sense of orphanhood, I believe, is just deeply human. Uh, you know a little bit about this in your life too, right? Have you felt any of those things before? Like, you have to protect yourself. You have to provide for yourself. You have to find people who will cheer you on. You have to create your place. I think you have. And often we go through life and we think, I guess they have the person. You know, they have the people that show up. Uh, but I don't. Uh, somebody must see them and I'm the only one that isn't seen at all. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, also known as Ted Lasso, uh, really great, brilliant, uh, brilliant work, but he was being interviewed just about this phenomenon that is Ted Lasso, and he said that one of his primary dreams as he was coming up in comedy and realizing that he was just this dramatically uh, creative person was that he wanted to do some show or some movie or some comedy or play that addressed uh, the pain that women and men have with their fathers and with their mothers. He said, I just want to do something that has to do with fatherhood and children and, and how they relate to their fathers and all of this stuff. And it's why. Why did he want to do that? Uh, because he said it's such a common thing. It's a seemingly the most human experience that we all have. It doesn't matter where you're from or who your parents are, how good you are, how bad they are, you feel a loss in this world. Uh, and, and I think what he's pointing to is the reality of the burden of, of sin and death and evil in this world that makes us orphans. That because of the, the presence of sin in this world and darkness and evil and all of the, the wounds and the bribing and the pushing and the shoving and all of the stuff that we do in this world and all of the separation that we have with God leaves us feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to do this whole life on my own. 
Because the the whole program of sin, the the deconstructive nature of sin uh, on relationships alienates us completely from others and from God. And we're left, you know, asking this question, uh, is anyone going to care for me? And then we answer it, no. Because time and time again, uh, I realize I have to care for myself. I think it's, it's pretty obvious in this city. Uh, there's not a single part of our lives that we get to do that's not contested by somebody else wanting to take up the same spot, the same role, the same house, the same soccer team, like whatever it is, somebody else is coming for that spot. So we say, no one's coming out. No one's going to care for us. Is anyone going to look out for me? We say no. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples and teaches us how to pray, and he says, start by saying, Father, he's giving us way more than a name or an image for God. He's giving us a theology, like an understanding of who is God and what does he do. He's also giving us even more than that. He's giving us an anthropology or an understanding of who we are as humans. And so those are the, those are the main things I'm going to say. Uh, who is this God? Father, that we begin our prayers with. He's a relational God. He's not aloof. Uh, He's not a a substance that's really far from us, somewhere in the galaxy that we just need to go and find. You know, he's not Thor or Thanos. Tell Ian I said that. Okay. Uh, He's a person. He's he's not a program or an institution. I think so much of our hangups with with God and Christianity is because we think, oh, well, God is an institution built in walls with brick and stuff, and and that's why I can't relate to him anymore. But God isn't those things. He's not a corporation. God is a person. And there's plenty of pictures and passages that I could point to in the Bible that kind of hold up and teach us that, that God is a relational God. Uh, One that I'll just point to most obvious is Adam and Eve, that, that God creates this perfect garden dwelling place for humanity, and then he designs them perfectly and puts them within it, and then he says, you can do this thing. You can steward the earth, you can care for it, you can cultivate it, you can be fruitful, and that they have everything that they need and that they're at peace. I mean, if you think of the opposite of orphanhood, that's what they experienced in the garden. But it wasn't that God wanted to set them up and send them out, you know, kind of like when you move uh, into your college dorm room and your parents give you uh, all of that cheap stuff from Target, and then they walk out and they're like, well, you're set up for life. No, what God does is like, I set you completely up, and now I'm going to be with you here in this place forever. Like that was his whole intent and his design. And if you hear about that, you're like, I want a father like that. It's because you were designed to have a father like that. You were made for it. And then as we know, like that Adam and Eve choose to rebel against that fatherhood, that relationship, that provision, and then they're left in this world having to go and and scrounge for it themselves. Uh, East of Eden, right? And then the other picture is of Jesus, that that Jesus uh, enters into this world, comes and dwells, and he walks among us so that we might know what God is actually like. Uh, We have a few sermons of his, but they're really short. Like, I don't know how he did it. Like, seven lines, 40 lines. That's his sermons. The bulk of what we know about who Jesus is and what he taught and what he believed comes in the context of conversations, 
that he was having with people, over dinner tables, along the road as he's walking with people. He is such a deeply relational person to where at the end of his life, he doesn't talk to them about marching orders or call them soldiers in the Lord's army. Instead, he says, I call you friends. Like that is who God is. He's always asking questions. He's seeing people's pain. He's, he's entering into that pain. He's listening. He's caring. He's the type of God who stops funeral processions to talk to the widow. Uh, he's the one who, who is so fully is involved with his own self, understands who he is, that he is able to relate to the rest of us. And so through all of Scripture, and I know that's really quick, uh, and you could, you know, there's another assignment for Mother's Day. Just read the whole scriptures. If the gospels wasn't enough. But this is what, it is, what we find out, that, that God is a God who reveals himself constantly through the whole of scripture. He's like, this is who I am. This is, this is what I am like. He's not aloof. He's not absent. He's also the God who provides. He provides the garden. He provides the air, the water, all of those things. But then he continuously provides a way. Uh, he provides uh, his son. He provides uh, life through resurrection. He's also the God who protects and says, I'm going to push out all the darkness, all the slavery, all the bondage. I'm going to come and protect you from that evil and Jesus who will die and rose, rise again. He's the God who pursues, who comes for those in pain. He's the God who listens. And then at the end, if you get all the way through today and you get to the end of Revelation there's this, there's this moment that kind of sums up the entire nature of God. It sums up all of his desires from the very beginning of the world, or even from before the beginning of the world. And there's a city, and it's descended, and there's this life, and there's multitudes of people, thousands of people from all over cultures and all sort of generations. They're all gathered together. And then there's this phrase that, that comes up, and it says, God's dwelling place is with his people. They know him, and he knows them. That is his whole desire, passion. So when we say Father, we're, we're speaking a theology that is all of that, an understanding of that's who God is. And so I just want to pause sort of briefly. What would change in your life if you saw God as a relational God? What would change in your life if you saw God as the relational God? And you get an answer even if you're grandparents or aunts, uncles, or great-grandparents. Everything. <laughs> I love it. It's a good answer. More trusting, less nervous? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A removal of loneliness. That's great. Less suspicious. Yeah. Mm. There's there's less like oh what's his what's his play here? Oh yeah totally. That's, the, that's why that God's not a corporation could really hit at home, right? Like, is he just trying to get me to surrender part of my benefits package? Yeah, totally. 
Yeah. Yeah, Jared. Yeah, absolutely. So good. Mm. Yeah, you would tell them about small things. Yeah, it's one of the tragedies of growing up. We think small things don't matter anymore. Because maybe when we were small, we thought we didn't matter. That's probably hard truth. Uh, yeah, and then when we get bigger, we think, oh, that doesn't matter. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like, I want to, yeah. I want to do my father's business. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I think that uh, just like really making you feel more comfortable with just talking to him on a daily basis and listening to your best friend. Mm. And you'd be more open, more vulnerable, sharing stuff, listening with your best friend. Mm. Yeah, open, vulnerable, yeah. So the other thing I said that it teaches us is, a, and I used a cool big word, like anthropology, but it teaches us who we are. Who, who are we as humans, right? Uh, and the truth is that the gospel transforms us from orphans into adopted children of God. Like, that's just the truth of what happens. We're all wandering out there, uh, trying to provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, secure a kingdom, make, make somebody love us. And then what God does is he says, I'm going to, from the foundations of the earth forward, I'm going to do all that's required. It's pretty amazing if you've ever walked with someone who's adopted uh, a child. They decide to adopt that child long before the child's usually even born. It's pretty amazing. And then they, they decide to save money. They go through all the classes. Uh, they, they pay all of the fees. They have someone come and look at their home to be like, hey, have you prepared a good home for a child? They do all of those steps. And then at the end, then there's a child that's born but they've done all the steps beforehand and they've paid all of the fees and they've done all that's required so that they could welcome a child back into a home. And the thing is, is that that's, it's just a great picture of like, wow, there's some lovely humans out there that would do something like that. But more powerfully, that is the very heart of God and what he has done. So that, so those, the, you might read the Old Testament and be like, man, what's that story of Abraham and Sarah all about and Joseph and Moses and all? It's God preparing and doing all that is required so that when Jesus shows up and he dies and he raises again to life, he's done everything that's needed to bring you into his family. He's done all the work. And that's the blessing that you have, and that's the truth of who we are. And so when we say the words Father in prayer, we're acknowledging a transformation that's happened from us, like within us. We, no longer, we don't have to approach, hey, like Lord or boss in the sky or big man upstairs. We get to say Father, and it's true for us. We're not, we're not calling somebody by some nickname, like he's not really my dad. We're actually getting to say the truth about who he is because we've been changed from estranged orphan child into child of God. It's a statement about who we are. Hey, thank you. You come back anytime. 
And there's a few images about that. One is the, the people of Israel when they're in bondage. They're suffering and they're uh, in, the, in the land of Egypt. And God sees them, is concerned about them. But they've been generation after generation in slavery and they just think that's who we are. We're the, we're the kind of people who deserve to die when we're born and it's only by some wonderful privilege we get to labor for somebody else. And that, that's who they thought they were, the, the kind of deconstruction of their mind and their personhood. But that God saves them and he redeems them and he takes them into the wilderness and this is what he says. He says, you're my people and I'm your God. And then he never forsakes them. He walks with them through the desert lands. He provides water for them. Uh, he provides food for them. He speaks to them in the wilderness. He leads them with fire and smoke, so much so that they can never question, is he with us still? They know he's with them still. And then he walks them to, the, to the, their inheritance, this promise that they've always been said, hey, there's going to be a place for you where you get to dwell without any harm. And then as they go in, God defeats them from all who would, or defeats those who would do harm to them. And this is what he means when God says, you're my people. Like, that's what it means. In the New Testament, 1 Peter, it says that that's what's true for us too because of Jesus. We are now his people and he is our God. That's really the, the reality of us as the people of God, the church. We're no longer slaves or burdened to sin, as Paul talks about in Romans uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8. It's really great. We spent a long time talking about it last year, so I won't do it now. But what it talks about is that we're no longer burdened with this wrath and this separation from God, no longer orphans, but we're now adopted sons and daughters of God. And this is the richness of being his. We have an inheritance that won't be defiled or broken down or fade away, but we have a, a lasting hope that's secure in Christ. We have a new name. Our name is now uh, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who we're most identified with, not ourselves or what we can accomplish. We're given a new authority as if we're the people responsible in this world for his kingdom. We're given that kind of authority, and we're given a family. It's pretty great, right? A family of people who all come in at the same status of orphan made child. And so the reality of a child is get this, and you'll see the similarities with the orphan thing. We've been given provision. Jesus has made a way for you. We've been given protection. Jesus has rescued you from evil, and he's secured your past and your present and your future. Like, what a thought. Uh, you've been placed. Like, you are now in the center of the kingdom and the rule of God where his mercy, compassion, and justice reigns. And you're placed in his family. You now have been given pride. Through Jesus, you're clothed now and perfect the way you were supposed to be. And the way that God looks at you is now all he can say is sing delightful things over you. And what God says over you is, this is my son. This is my daughter. I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of him. I designed her. I saved him. I'm making them new. Look at this. This is what God says over you. I'm proud of you. And so I just, I'll stop there to let you guys talk again. What would change in the way you operate in this world if you knew you were a child of God? If all of that stuff was true for you, how would that change how you operate? 
Remain in him daily. Yeah. You'd be like, I want to be in this house forever. Yeah. I think that's what David meant when he was writing those songs. I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah. Yeah, go. Maybe be uh, less offended. Like, things less Be more great. Like, grace would overflow for other people. Because you're like, I'm pretty secure. I've got a spot. Yeah. Go for it, madam. Um, I'm going to quote you back to you. Oh. Strive for what's already been fulfilled. Nice. I don't remember saying that, so that was good. <laughs> I say I'd live more purposeful knowing Father's work. Yeah. You set the example. Yeah, you'd be like, I'm going to, yeah, live with the big purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to give my life to something that's going to work. Yeah. Nice. Not so much performance, just be. Yeah. I would say my identity would be the foundation of my identity would be I'm a child of God. And it wouldn't be my race or my gender or age or who I am or whatever. None of those things would be, none of those things would be able to touch like the primary identity that I use to walk in the world. Mm. Yeah. Very, much more yeah. Yeah, there'd be this gentle and this desire to receive forgiveness because you'd be like, because often we withhold that because we don't want anyone to tear down our little kingdom or castle and think less of us. But if you're like, oh, my, my father is so proud of me, you can be like, look, I, I'm, I'm also a screw up. And people would be like, oh. And you'd have the freedom to do that, freedom to be gentle with people. Yeah. Yeah, Allie. Mm, yeah. Wow. Totally. You'd be like, oh, then he's going to, you know, yeah. I would also put less value in this world. Mm, yeah. You would see a lot of, yeah. It'd be a lot harder to be swayed by, like, social media posts or breaking news that isn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's all good. Uh, I'm going to summarize it. Like, so what does all of this mean? especially when we talk about prayer. It means that prayer is really where our theology, what we believe about God, is put into practice and it's acted out. Uh, prayer is where our view of God becomes concrete. Uh, prayer is where our understanding of how he's transformed us and is transforming us, that's where it's built, is in prayer. Uh, and there's a type of prayer called contemplative prayer, uh, sometimes it's called keeping company with Jesus. So if you like that word, that's a cool phrase, keeping company with Jesus. Uh, you can put that on your schedule, your calendar. I'm sorry, I can't come to this meeting. I'm keeping company with Jesus. 
another way that this is sometimes described is practicing the presence, of just being present with God. But really, the whole thing, there's lots of names, and some of them are, are long, but it's really quite simple. It's about spending time in prayer considering the scope of the world. Like, what has God made? Considering who God is. Uh, what is he like? And, and listening to the word of God through scripture or through your own memory of what other people have said about who you are and how he loves you. Contemplative prayer is just listening to that. In other words, it's, it's just a time of, of thinking and dwelling in the presence of God. Who are you, God, and who am I? Uh, Henry Nouwen, who is a Dutch priest, uh, I, he wasn't blonde, though, so I don't know what happened there. Anyway, <laughs> cut him out. Anyway, uh, Henry Nouwen, a, a priest uh, who went to Harvard, who was a teacher at Harvard, and he spent a lot of life uh, doing a lot of different things. But he said this about it. He said, contemplative prayer deepens us in the knowledge that we are already free, that we have already found a place to dwell, that we already belong to God, even when everything around us keeps suggesting the opposite. And that's what contemplative prayer is. And so to end this time, I want us to spend uh, just a few minutes, like two minutes, it'll be quiet, we'll hear the air conditioner, it'll be awkward. But spend two minutes uh, practicing that kind of contemplative prayer. It can be as simple as, uh, Father, remind me of who you are. Or Father, speak to me about who I am. Uh, and maybe you'll get a word or a, uh, an image or a picture, or maybe God will just remind you of something from this sermon. Uh, but we'll take two minutes just quietly praying that to yourself, and then we'll go and, and take communion. Father, we're so happy to be your children. Uh, thank you that we are already free, that we've already found our place to dwell, uh, that we already belong to you, uh, even when everything and everyone seems to suggest the opposite. Uh, thank you for meeting with us in this place, for dwelling with us. Uh, help us to, to push away the other images of you that are uh, aloof, brick, uh, hard, and distant, and help us to embrace you as the one who relates and pursues and protects. Thank you, Father. Amen.